This is Geek Gab with your host, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back, Geek Gab for Saturday, October 31st, 2020. Um, before we get the show started, we got some bad news for you, if you haven't heard, folks. Sean Connery, the great, legendary, absolute master actor, Sean Connery, passed away today at the age of 90. His family announced it, and it's been all over the news. I just found out myself uh, just about an hour ago, so... Um, Condolences for his family, and I hope you rest in peace, sir. Rest in peace, sir, Sean Connery. Uh, um, awesome actor. Great great memories. Fully, great memories. <clears throat> great memories. Fully lived life. And uh, I'm pretty, pretty sure <clears throat> he's up in heaven doing his best James Bond impression. I am. F's in the chat, guys. Thanks. Uh, that that's a legend. Uh, all legends pass away uh, eventually, and uh, it's 2020. So I, I I'll say that I'm saddened, but not shocked. It's a shame. I just want to say uh, I feel like I should give a eulogy or something, but Sean Connery's been around my entire life. Uh, obviously, he's 90, and I am not 90. Um, I'm younger than 90. I, I feel I should clarify that in case there is any sense of ambiguity about that statement. I am not yet ascended to the heights of 90-hood. Um, and he has been in a great many movies I loved, and probably several of them I only loved because Sean Connery was in them. Um, but legendary movies, uh, The Highlander, Hunt for Red October, um, all the James Bond movies that he was in, of course, um, and just, he just cut this searing path across cinema, um, absolute master. He retired approximately, uh, 20 years ago. After the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is something I blame that movie for, which is, it was a mediocre movie anyway, but that's something that really caused me to hold a, some bitterness against that movie was that it made Sean Connery uh, retire. And I really honestly held out hope in my heart for 20 years that he would come back and do at least one last movie to uh, before, you know, the end. Um, but he was a great actor. He defined masculinity on the silver screen. Uh, and he's one of those, he's one of that fading generation of, definitionally masculine men that I don't know that we're ever going to see their likes again anytime soon. Um, so it, yeah, lots of shout outs to all his great roles in chat. No, you're right. We, we're not going to see anyone like him in a long time. 
what a uh, what a great guy, what a great actor. And I'm going to point out, I'm going to add my memory to the list. Who can forget the Scottish guy <clears throat> playing a Spaniard who trains a French guy playing a Scottish Highlander? That's the role of a lifetime. I mean, if okay. you could go, if you could go back and pick two roles, if you had to choose between uh, '80s B movie uh, cheese or James Bond, which would you choose? Sort of. If if I was to choose my favorite Sean Connery movie, I would have to go all out heretical and pick The Rock, as Chad has brought up. Wow. Well, I mean, you are a Michael, a sucker for Michael Bay. So there you go. <laughs> the Rock was an awesome movie, and Sean Connery just elevated it. Um, and the funny thing is, there is a fan theory running around that The Rock makes even more sense if you pause it that Mason, his character in The Rock, was actually James Bond, who had been captured and kept in prison by the U.S. government. For like 30 years. <laughs> Sean Connery uh, or James Bond from the 60s who had been imprisoned and had stolen all those secrets from the U.S. government and hidden them and they just wanted them back. Wow. Oh, well, uh, technical difficulties resolved. I'd like to welcome Brian back to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Hey, your turn. Sean Connery memories go. You're on the spot. Oh, for, for me, it's got to be Highlander. That's my favorite Ramirez. too. Yeah. He was the only good thing about Highlander too, as well. <laughs> Even he couldn't save it. Oh, you actually, like, you live in alter, an alternate reality where Highlander two was actually exists. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who can forget John C. McGinley? Doing an Orson Welles impression the whole movie, <laughs> which he later admitted was probably a mistake. <laughs> wow. I uh you, you got an endorsement, Simon Hogwood in chat cruise with you, DW. Mason is Bond. Um he was also Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. Oh yeah, love that role. Yeah, because I mean who who else could play Indiana Jones' dad but James Bond? Yeah, yeah. I just, and, and, uh, and who who could actually pull off the, one of the cheesiest lines ever? You call this archaeology? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got to agree with uh, with DW from earlier about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which just made Connick throw up his hands and be like, "All right, I'm out." When someone asked him where director Stephen Norrington was, he said, "If you check the local insane asylum." <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So thank you, Stephen Norrington, for just destroying a stained glass window for just desecrating. Yeah, a classic. Oh. Yeah, what a. Oh yeah, we don't need to go into that mess, but rest in peace. Well, incredible. Anyways, how is your week, Dornall? My week is all right. Kind of chill and relax. I uh, I ended up playing a bunch of games with friends instead of watching horror movies as I originally had planned so there's a there's one there's an l in the in the planning and following through column but a w in the uh hanging out playing D D and 
terraforming Mars. So that's where all my leisure time went. Uh, but my, how about you? I myself have also did not watch any horror movies this week. <laughs> I even told myself I'm gonna get I'm gonna get that seven day free trial of Shutter. I'm gonna binge. Right. I'm just gonna <laughs> sit down and 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 all, last night I'm like, oh, it's it's Friday. I should maybe there's something on. Maybe. But <laughs> oh, am I the only one? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. I wanted oh, to, but this week went really weird on me, so I didn't. Um, however, um, I have been watching Supernatural because it's the last season of Supernatural, which is actually, it's just the last half season of last year's season because COVID messed up the f- filming schedule, obviously. And uh, when that's over, whenever these last few episodes finish broadcasting, uh, we'll do a like a retrospective of the last 15 years of Supernatural. And then uh, I saw the first episode of The Mandalorian second season. And so we will, it'll be eight more weeks, but we'll do a review of that when it gets over. Um, that was my week. That's what I watched this week. <laughs> Two episodes of Supernatural and The Mandalorian. Wow. It is what it is. Yeah. Yep. It'll do big. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, so Brian, did you, uh, you're a huge movie guy. Did you sit down and enjoy many horror flicks in preparation for this glorious day? Happy Halloween, by the way, to you guys. Happy Halloween. Yeah. Well, I went for quality over quantity. So I watched two rather, I should say I, I attempted to according to the best of my lights. So, uh, I I had a hit and a miss. The hit was brooding nineties, goth cult classic, the crow. Oh, Oh, classic. Yeah. Wonderful movie, which is not technically a Halloween movie. It's, a Halloween Eve movie, a Devil's Night movie, but you know, I, I squeezed it in there, and uh, yeah, just been been on a nostalgic kick lately. So I thought I'd uh, revisit some pre-cultural Ground Zero films, see if that, they held up. That does remind me, though, I did watch a small documentary about The Crow, and probably about twenty to thirty other mini documentaries about other horror movies. So. I didn't watch any horror movies, but I watched a lot of videos about horror movies. <laughs> it's meta. You're, 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 yeah, you're about to become the foremost expert on horror movies. Uh, I haven't seen The Crow in probably 15 years. How does it hold up? Except for a couple of crude CG sequences that they really should have done practically super well. I'm... Um, Glad to say it's it's a ton of fun. Uh, seeing Brandon Lee and all his glory is still a still a gut punch. Speaking of uh, great actors who ain't with us no more, mm. definitely pour one out for him and Sean. You know, hopefully they're uh, they're hamming it up in the the, the big soundstage upstairs. But uh, no, the atmosphere and tone still unmatched. Um, it's just 
it's it's still one of the great revenge stories. Not much carries over from the original James O'Barr comic, but that theme definitely does. They just nailed it. Um, and mainly performances way better than they had any right to be in a production that was basically a frayed shoestring budget. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the 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 villain in particular, the villain in in Brandon Lee's performances stand out in my mind, in my memory anyway. Uh, really outstanding. Uh, plus, that um, the mood and feel of the crow is that kid you knew in high school that got into goth before everybody else did, before it was popular. Mm-hmm. He's walking around school with the with the black nail polish and everything, and you're like, yeah, that's <clears throat> that's what you get out of that. All right, I'm I'm glad I'm gonna have to watch that again sometime. Yeah, and I'm I'm gonna make a bit of a tenuous connection here. Just more, it's more of a gut aesthetic sense than any kind of paper trail. But I think Brandon Lee's Crow was a big inspiration on Heath Ledger's Joker. If only oh, in a roundabout yeah. way, like filtered through the pop culture machine. But because I, I watched. Um, Dark Knight again shortly after that, and there are really a lot of similarities. Interesting. Uh, well, what's one? Well, one, the decision to go with um, face paint for the Joker instead of the Nicholson, like having his skin bleached by acid, right? Sure. Um, the in the look of their their face paint is uh, is actually similar. Um, and in fact, there there's kind of, again, a roundabout reference in The Crow that pertains to the Joker because at one point, uh, Ernie Hudson calls him a mime from hell. <laughs> oh my God, I forgot Ernie Hudson was in that. Oh my goodness. What a yeah, and in <clears throat> Tim Burton, Batman, um, Jack Nicholson's Joker does dress up as a mime with a troop of mimes. At one point, he's like the, the mime ringleader. Yes, in the in the art museum, yeah. Yeah, and also with Heath Ledger, like the, the longer kind of stringier hair, just the more disheveled appearance, and just the, you know, don't 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 give a frack attitude. I don't, I don't know. Interesting. So it's there there's some it's it doesn't it, it's not homage, but it, there's parallels, it sounds like. Yeah, I think it's more that the the crow kind of laid the groundwork or, uh, you know, cleared a landing pad for that approach to the Joker. Uh, or, later. or left an impression yeah. in the minds of people, Heath Ledger's age that resonated that it's, it, so it's a, it, the Joker isn't an homage or a copy <clears throat> or anything intentional at all. It sounds like it's more of an echo of. Yeah. And this is anecdotal, but the first time I saw the dark Knight in theaters, I saw it with my buddies um, then 14 year old cousin and she was a huge crow fan. She was going through a big crow phase, you know, was doing the whole goth thing and she'd never seen a Batman movie at all before that one. Like we even had to explain and she was like, well, does he turn into Batman? Like, does he have some like transformation? Like, Oh no, basically Batman's the real guy and he's just a trained ninja. Who's really rich. Right. Right. It's all skills and gadgets. But yeah, she saw that and came out of it saying, wow, I really liked that. And it was basically because of Ledger's Joker. Hmm. So it resonates with Crow fans. Cool. 
more speaking more, of a, another actor who is no longer with us. Oh, there you go. Wow. You've made this Halloween spooky already, DW. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, there's, there's, it bleeds over into real life. There, there's kind of a high strangeness there because Brandon Lee and the Joker both died like shortly, like during or shortly after making a comic book inspired movie that was supposed to be their breakout vehicle and was, but they didn't live to enjoy it. Oh, wow. Ooh. And both featuring dark clowns. Ooh. He yeah. shows up looking like a mind from hell and disappears right out from under me. Yeah. There you go. Um, so what was the movie that was a miss? As, as much as I hate to say this, being an OG Friday the 13th fan from back in the day, Friday the 13th Part 4, the final chapter, it does not hold up. I'm, I'm guessing partially because it's not actually the final chapter and they kept making more. No, that really doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, like I'd recently watched Red Letter Media's review of it and... Josh and Jay were talking about how, oh, well, this actually had like a, a decent director knew what he was doing and he tried to bring a little artistry to it. You know, it's not just the cheaply made schlock of the first three and it's it's actually the first one where we get a whole movie of Jason as we know him, right? Because he doesn't actually get the hockey mask until the very end of part three. So... Oh. Yeah, part four is the one that actually established his look. Like the machete-wielding, hockey mask-clad, hulking, unstoppable killing machine. But, yeah, it it just really shows its age. It, it really shows its lack of a budget and just schlock. And, and honestly, parts of it are just boring. Like, it, it does drag... At a number of intervals. The worst possible crime <clears throat> of a horror film is to be boring. Yeah, it is. And I remember loving this thing back in the day, but yeah, it doesn't stand up to the nostalgia, unfortunately. That's a shame. I I don't have much to say because I actually have never seen any of the Friday the 13th films. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> At one point, I had seen all of them, but that was before Jason Goes to Manhattan came out, and so I haven't seen Manhattan and anything else after that. Yeah, and that's understandable. You know, a.k.a. Jason on a boat, so they should have called it. <laughs> they, yeah, did one, they did one in space, right, Jason X? Oh, yeah. every horror movie franchise goes to space, and that's how you know it's <clears> shark. Oh, Hellraiser went to space. Even Leprechaun went to space. <laughs> you know the sad thing about Hellraiser goes to space? In space, there are no rainbows. What? It was actually a Clive Barker story originally. He wrote the you know treatment and story for that movie. He directed the first one. First two. The first two, really? I didn't know he directed the second. Okay. Yeah, but uh, the second one didn't have the budget that they needed, so they had to 
I mean, even before they made the movie, they had to cut out just huge swaths of what he envisioned it. And so a lot of the things that would have gone into the movie to make the second one make more sense. Did I mention I watched a lot of documentaries about horror movies this week? No. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, lot of the, you sure are regaling us with quite a bit of knowledge. So A lot of the stuff that would have gone into the second one make it make uh, more sense and be more grand and epic. Just they had to cut out. They didn't have the budget to put it on, on film. Wow. So it wasn't even an editorial decision or studio decision. It just didn't have the money for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I don't know enough about movie production, but it's great. What, what do you do when you run out of budget? You're like, well, do we, do we keep, do we find money? Do we just cut together what we have? What do we have? Yeah, I, I just remember um, what stood out about the first Hellraiser's production was that, like, Barker was coming up hard on the, the deadline or was, was over the deadline for the movie to be done. And like none of the effect shots were done. So like him and a buddy just got really drunk over a weekend and like finished it themselves, which is why the special effects look really cheesy. And yet it's Clive Barker. So they work. Um, I do think that the ending of Hellraiser two um, and the byplay between, um, is it Christine and, uh, Pinhead and how that culm culminates in the ending and the climax is just, is a really brilliant idea and how that plays through. Oh, uh, yeah. Like Hellraiser. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Hellraiser one and Hellraiser two, just taken as a pair, are brilliant. Um, they're uh, I don't know. I I'd, I'd have to have a longer discussion period to talk about them, but um, they are gory. And disturbing, but uh, they're brilliant movies, and I really, really uh, enjoyed them. I think I maybe love those two movies. Yeah, they're they're classics. I'm glad <clears throat> I'm glad that there's people out there who can appreciate those things. That's all. I, that's I, all I'll say about it. <laughs> I think horror movies have a genuine value. I think horror has a genuine value uh, beyond its entertainment. And when you get a movie or a book that shows up in that value, and obviously it, you can make schlocky stuff that's entertaining, and that's valuable too. Um, but... Uh, they can be just as worthwhile as any other genre. Oh, sure. Well, I, I suppose it's as good a time as any to get into what makes horror horror. And you're right. One element that really makes horror work is 
the, the morality tale aspect, right? It's, it's about reinforcing cultural taboos, right? You know, uh, oh. let, let me see this before I forget it, because I'm going to forget it. Um, our brains know the difference between reality and fantasy when it comes to gore and horror and violence. That's why violent video games don't actually cause an increase of violence in the real world. And that's why action movies don't cause an increase of violence in the real world. And horror movies and horror books allow us to take death and violence and the concepts of evil and supernatural evil and human evil and put them in a box and deal with them in a safe space um, to vicariously experience them in a place where we are physically safe, but we can still experience fear. We can still experience horror. We can still experience the macabre and the revolting and still get ideas of heroism and opposing them and the necessity of opposing them. And even in the best ones of faith, and depending on faith and resisting them and going in against the odds and going in against supernatural evil and fighting it and overcoming it time and again uh, of saving the innocent, of even sacrificing yourself to save the innocent or defend the innocent. Um, all of these things, we can play around with these ideas in a perfectly safe environment. And that kind of prepares you. Um, or reinforces the notion of being able to do so in the real world. Um, it reinforces the cultural belief that this is a good thing and a noble thing and that we can do it and that we should do it. Uh, and it's the small bit of safety that lets you confront this without you know, knowing that you're not going to die but vicariously experiencing the fear that the fictional characters are experiencing. And it's also entertaining. And so it's a horror, I believe, and this has stemmed from my observation of Halloween and other similar things. I believe that if the macabre and the death and ghoulies and scary things didn't have a virtue, didn't have some worth to the human psyche that Halloween wouldn't continue as a holiday, that we wouldn't keep doing this year after year and dressing kids up in spooky things or having them scared by spooky things. It's real easy to scare kids. And so we have this kind of watered down spookiness because the holiday has been focused mostly on kids, um, you know, cartoon witches and stuff. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But as you get in as a teenager, you get more stuff that is more scary and more fearful. And as you get into adult, you have stuff that's even scarier and even spookier and even more macabre and bloody and gory uh, with horror movies and stuff. But if Halloween didn't have a value, if these things didn't have a value for us to confront and encounter, we wouldn't keep doing them. We wouldn't keep going back to these things. And uh, and so I kept on coming back to the idea that these had to have a value to culture and had to have a value to us as people. Um, they had to speak to something that we needed. 
uh, or that we hungered for. And so I think at least as of right now, and maybe I'll, you know, add to it or elaborate on it or understand it deeper. But as of right now, horror allows us to face things that we need to face, that we hunger to face in ways that are safe, but which can prepare us even to just cope with the world. So we're not overwhelmed by trauma all the time that you can read horrific stories or encounter horrific concepts of say serial killers or the evils that happen in China uh, with the Uyghurs, just the very real things that if you spend too much time dwelling on them or you take them way too seriously, they can get you down. They can grind you down. They can make you weak. They can burden you. We deal with things like that in horror via proxies of supernatural monsters, via proxies of fictional monsters like Hannibal Lecter. And so it helps us not take those things so seriously that they interfere with getting on it with living and interfere with experiencing joy in our life. Um, and that's why horror is useful as a genre, is helpful as a genre, and is even uplifting as a genre. It shows us that these things can be taught. We deal with them, and we are prepared to go on and live life joyfully, um, joyously, uh, which is, you know, it's our right. We have a right to live life joyfully in a world that has dark things in it. We don't have to be miserable all the time just because there's evil things in the world. We can be happy. We can enjoy what's what's given to us. So that's, that's my pitch for why I think horror is a worthwhile genre, is it helps us deal with darkness with, in a safe place, in a, in a safe way, so that we can live. Amen. We, that, it, yeah, fantastic. We're, we're going to start, uh, we're going to start creating some college courses. Hey, sorry, uh, so man, you, you should have a gum road. A gum road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was a perfect explication of the themes and really the, the cultural value of horror. I want to talk about what makes horror stories work in light of that. And you really hit on it. And uh, as uh, fellow author J.D. Cowan said in the chat, a lot of horror movies have an inciting incident that is the breaking of a rule, right? Like uh, American Werewolf in London, Gremlins, don't feed the Mogwai after midnight, right? And uh, it goes back to Little Red Riding Hood, you know, don't don't talk to strangers. It, it goes back to Frankenstein. Don't try to play God. And as Brandon Sanderson observed quite often, when a character makes the wrong choice, it's almost always more interesting than when he makes the right choice. And that's really the foundation horror is built upon is examining the consequences of making the wrong choice in violation of your culture's taboos and the catharsis of a horror story comes from seeing someone who breaks these taboos, get punished for it. Um, 
famous scene in Jason X uh, where he's beating the pot smoking, fornicating teenagers against the tree in a sleeping bag, right? Uh, which is a nod to part seven, I believe. But then it also comes to the kind of smug feeling of, oh, well, I would never make that mistake. I would never run, you know, up the stairs deeper into the house where it's harder to escape, right? You know, I wouldn't take the dicey shortcut. And if, you, if you've got those ingredients, those are the makings of a, a solid horror story, which, as you said, can be up, uplifting, oddly enough. You know, that uh, the brush with fear can make you feel more alive, you know, like riding a roller coaster, right? See, now that I can, I, I can uh, appreciate. I love roller coasters. Yeah, that's how you get your fix. <clears throat> that's fantastic. Uh, I, I don't have anything to add, guys, because, you know. Okay, well, I'd have something to add from a while back, which is uh, th- there are no rainbows in space, I believe is a tagline I came up with for... <laughs> for <Bloodlines>. <laughs> that's true, I'm, I definitely want to go there. And... Uh, <laughs> Elon Musk, Uncle Elon, is way ahead of us. Because did did you see the article where he recently said, right, I'm building Mars colony and I'm not going to recognize any of your human laws, Earthlings. (laughs) I love it. He's building his own Mars colony with blackjack and and hookers, right? (laughs) That's how it's going to be, right? If if someone's going to independently do it, it's... uh, I think we all sort of pictured... Like Earth Nations, either like United Nations thing or Earth Nations claiming, well, I mean, this is just like America on Mars or this is just like China on the moon. And it's going to be like, it might be more like Elon Musk is going to name his own country. <laughs> and well, and not, that'll be it. Not all of us were sought that way, no, John, because I have an entire mech saga, which now has a first new installment in an all new series of that saga, which from the beginning has envisioned a totally different outcome of private space exploration and settlement. What a fantastic segue. Well designed, sir. Um, yes. The, the, the reason why you, you uh, joined us today wasn't, wasn't for, I mean, I hope you weren't predicting uh, the demise of Sean Connery or, or talk about Halloween movies. You actually just released a new book. Yes, I did. And uh, as Megan Buster Shepherd in the chat says, Musk makes Xeon real. Close. He's making the systems of a terrestrial coalition from combat frame X seed real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it's true and it's it's frightening. <laughs> it's gonna happen. You can't stop it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so combat frame X seed S. I've uh, I've read the ebook already, and we in fact we did a, a tiny mini review last week so I, i'm gonna let you take it away and tell us all about this uh this new book thank you yeah so i've already had a smash success initial series comment frame x seed which uh readers have come to playfully call the cy era saga or the coalition year 40 saga so I want to take a step back from that and take a page from the original Tomino Gundam series and kind of do like 
my Zeta Gundam. So I see the first three books as being one continuous series along with the uh, short stories that bridge um, the books. And so now I'm in my next series or think of it as uh, Star Trek and Star Trek, the next generation, if you will. So the themes and tone are different here. So whereas before you had more groups of partisans armed with these bleeding edge war machines trying to fight off this uh, nanny state coalition that's trying to impose its will on the earth. So basically think if like uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Sir Richard Branson fled the, the chaos engulfing the earth, settled outer space. And then after like hundred years, their descendants come back and try to, you know, re-civilize the earth according to their bug man image. Right. Mm. So that was the main conflict in the CY era. Well, the final book in that series, CY 42nd coming introduces the alien threat that a lot of readers asked for. So at the end of that book, humanity finds out, okay, we have way bigger fish to fry than battling each other. We, we are facing outright genocide at the, the hands of these unfeeling alien crystal space crabs. So we, we need to band together. So the S arc, which I'm starting now takes on more of a Macross or Star Trek feel where you've got actual regimented military service members who are all piloting mass produced X seeds. Cause they're the only thing that can stand up to these hyper advanced alien combat frames serving aboard enormous city sized super carriers in space. And uh, basically hopping from planet to planet attempting to solve a mystery involving political and military intrigue all the while coming to conflict with uh, th this alien menace that's hanging overhead. That is, I mean, first of all, that sounds crazy in, in a, a great way. That sounds, uh, my reaction to the book was sort of the same thing, uh, which is to say, I noticed that you had shifted gears to this sort of galaxy trotting adventure. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about it is that the, the Inzu, that existential threat, uh, you have presented them, and I hope this isn't too much spoiler. You've presented them more like the boogeyman uh, than everything else. There's there is direct conflict with them, but that's not the source of the story's conflict, which I which I was uh, I was surprised at, but uh, it was uh, it was enjoyable. Can you tell me? Can you tell me about the those conflicts and and why you sort of structured it that way? Sure. And first of all, if you go back and reread the first series, you can see that I'm building up to this because I had all of these books outlined for well over a decade. So I knew we were eventually going to get to S. In fact, this was 
where I really wanted to get to. Like as much as I like the previous books, my fingers were just itching to type this book, right? So you've got the introduction of TCD faster than light travel in book one. You've got the AI Marilyn exchanging messages with something out there. Uh, then we start to see glimpses of an alien presence being slowly revealed until in CY 42nd coming, we've got two aliens that actually show up. Right. And one of them warns of becoming Inzu because, uh, and actually at the end of that book, first we have the Anu, which do manage to take out an entire O'Neill cylinder space colony. But these alien kind of harbingers, thinking of them as uh, kind of like the silver surfer, if he'd uh, given up and said, well, we can't stop Galactus. So let's just uh, find a nice moon or asteroid, put down our launchers, get our popcorn and enjoy the show as he destroys the world, right? That's kind of what these guys are. They warn, okay, good job, humanity. Uh, yeah, you took out the Anu. They were like the mall cops to the Inzu who are coming, who are more like the military. <laughs> so get ready, right? And yeah, that establishes this existential threat. And like you said, yeah, the Inzu are the boogeyman. Um, I don't want to go so far as to say that uh, they don't receive characterization because that's not true. I mean, consider the Terminators in the Terminator franchise. That's about what their mindset is, you know, kill anything that's not us. Hmm. But yeah, because of that, um, the story does need more of a personal level human threat. So the, the Indians were there. They've been besieging Earth for a few decades as the story begins. Like Earth is just surrounded in a constant siege of these aliens just keep throwing themselves against our defenses. So that's the status quo. The inciting incident is one of the far-flung extrasolar colonies that mankind founded so as not to have all their eggs in one basket in case Earth falls, comes under attack by this alien boogeyman and gets cut off from the outside. So a couple of the pilots there have to make a last-ditch effort, even in, in defiance of military protocol, to try to go to Earth and bring back help. So that's the inciting incident. Well, then a mystery arises as to, well, well, okay, why did this colony that's been safe for years suddenly get attacked out of the blue? And we start unraveling clues that hint that uh, there may have been some fifth columnists or, or traitors involved, right? Mm -hmm. And not to spoil anything, but this then gives rise to a question of like, okay, now that we're pretty sure there are human traders that are selling us out to the Inzu. There arises the question as to who those traders are mm -hmm. and what is their nature. And that even extends to the main ensemble cast where even their 
fellow squad mates and people they, they serve with. And then even the characters themselves don't know if they can fully trust even themselves. Right. Because the, the concept that you introduced in the CY series of the Sentinels is in play. And because of the nature of the Sentinel, um, the last one in CY40 was Zend, right? Yeah, Sulia. Uh, Sulia Zend, who uh, was one of the Sentinels who decided not to go all in on helping the Inzu and destroy humanity and, and was sort of, you know, turned by, you know, convinced by another Sentinel in, in a strange fashion to sort of build up this human de defensive humanity. Well, not quite. So, not I, quite. I, I don't mean to, to correct you on that, but it's it's actually important for the, the conflict of, of S. Uh, she wasn't convinced by another Sentinel. What convinced her was a normal human being who rivaled her bloodthirst. And her capacity oh, and, and see, I, I thought... Um, Sorry, I I don't know where I misread that. I I I thought uh, Arthur was an active sentinel, but I, that is no. not not all right. He's hundred percent human. He's a living example of the worst we're capable of. Okay, well uh, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Although uh, I've told you this privately that that um, I I did sort of uh, skim the sections with Arthur. Ah, okay. <laughs> no, that's very important because it tells you something about the nature of the sentinel. That yeah. They're a, a fifth columnist within humanity that is there to help the Inzu destroy us. And the one thing that has turned a sentinel against uh, her masters is finding a human who's within a hair as good at her job as she is. Got it. <laughs> right. So that's what we're dealing with. Um, and yeah, for those who've wondered like, well, what was Megami's deal from the first book? And what, what was Sully's deal? What is the Sentinel? I answer that in this book. Like I, yeah. I just, the, the mystery, the characters uncover the mystery in S. And that's what the S on the cover stands for, by the way. Because. Apparently it stands for spoilers. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying really hard to avoid that while, while enticing people. But previously the Sentinel had always been kind of on this other level removed from the main characters. Like you never really too much got inside the Sentinel characters' heads, really never knew who they were. In this book, the Sentinel takes center stage. And that that's where I'll leave it. Very good. Very good. So yeah, it's it's clearly if you've been reading from the beginning, yes, it's clear that you've been building up to this. Um uh, let's see. Well, what can I say about it? Like, give you a give you a preview of my mini review, which is only because I I don't have a question right now. I uh, what we got out what we what you get out of this book is your at this point your um, calling card the uh, that fast paced action story where where you uh, you barely allow enough time to breathe. Um, you, I believe you do manage a couple of comic relief moments, which was nice. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's that that sort of pulse-pounding, nonstop action. Tons of great robot-on-robot -robot action. Uh, and but the type of story, as as we talked about just a minute ago, the type of story is different. It's not the next 
CY40 story, only this time in space with more powerful mechs. <laughs> it's it's a different story. Uh, with uh, and it's it's it has an ensemble cast like CY40, but it's a different kind of ensemble. Right. Whereas the CY arc ended up in something more like Gundam Wing, where, where okay, you've got these like th- this ragtag band of idiosyncratic pilots with uh, each with his own quirky signature mech. The feel of S is it's more martial. There's a bit more military uh, regimentation while still in, indulging in the the trope of uh, well, mech pilots are basically you know like uh, cavalry hotshots, and they get more leeway to be a bit more independent. They're a bit more rebellious, right? Mm-hmm. But it's much more like Macross. And uh, I, I tell you what, I you know I'm not a huge anime fan in mecha anime anyway, but uh, I think I, I really enjoyed Macross, but maybe that was just the art style on those robots. It's a great art style. Um, yeah, because what differentiates S from the CY40 arc is instead of it mainly being custom units fighting against, um, you know, cookie cutter, faceless evil coalition robots. It's pilots in mass produced exceeds. So I, I do give them little touches, like little individual touches, but it's more like, okay, we're starting you with this stock unit, but then individual pilots kind of customize it. So Jehu Red, the uh, commander of the Guardian Angels who pilots the mech on the cover, which is my avatar, the uh, MCF-121 Defender. <clears throat> Excuse me. He carries two linear rifles and wields them like Rambo John Woo style. As and, to and, and those are those are custom rifles too. The, the normal, that's not the typical loadout for that type of robot, right? Uh, the typical loadout is one. One, yeah. Okay. So he's got an extra one. Uh, and then you've got Marcus August who is rocking like a, a nigh hundred year old X seed, but he's just bolted a bunch of aftermarket mods to it to make it keep up. <laughs> and in an odd that I, I'm sure uh, our, our good friend in the, one of our good friends in, in chat will appreciate. He carries a superheated chainsaw sword. That's what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. You, you dig that too. That's right. Uh, you know what? Uh, it's just the brutality of it and the idea that you sort of established that. Okay, so here's something here's something really interesting that I'm sure was deliberate, right? You've got this weird arms race going on in the in the first set of books, where it's sort of a quick you quickly ramp up f- to this really important. Um, sorry, ad- adaptation or, or innovation. Innovation is the word where uh, because of Zane and Browning and Zeklov, all of a sudden humanity figures out how to make cool space age energy weapons, feasible and, and economical. So you've, you, that, that sort of changes the whole face of the war on Earth. 
well, you know that and flinging asteroids at people, but you know <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Like, so this this was the big technological leap. This was the this was the machine gun nest of you know World War CY forty, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, so that was great, but but then sort of if you read between the lines, once the existential threat comes in, you've sort of you've established that the Inzu have been past that milestone for who knows hundreds thousands of years you, you, you we don't know anything about them really but those cool space age energy weapons are almost perfectly defended against <laughs> just like yeah. yeah we figured that out eons ago and so this this wonderful military capacity that you've built up to kill each other is actually the worst possible thing you could throw at us so one of the most effective weapons is a guy with a really fast mech and a chainsaw sword. <laughs> I'm going to pick up on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and uh, full disclosure, it also comes out in the, uh, in the, um, you, you, you have a crunchy set of simulation rules. Let me say that you use mm -hmm. to sort of model your world. And, and it sort of comes out in that too. Um. I don't know what's I don't know what's informing what the the simulation rules or your uh, or your storytelling, but it's 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 fun. It's fascinating. It is a lovely self-referential spiral. Okay, um, that uh, and I want to I want to bring this other thing up because we have those of us who have been involved in the backer in backing it, and most of you guys know uh, I've backed most of them so far and i love the build a mech level so tell me about how the campaign went and and the perks and stuff because uh for me it was it was extra special as someone who participated so um instead of me gushing I, i'd like to know how that's working out for you how uh, how much of an impact your backers have on the story and the project well thanks for passing the gushing baton to me because yeah i'm I'm going to gush because darn it, we earned it. And I'm including everyone here, including the chat, because I know most of you guys helped. So I have crowdfunded every XSeed book to date on Indiegogo. And they've all done rather well. I've, I've never failed to fund. The campaign for Combat Frame XSeed S blew the doors off of every previous campaign. It raised as much as CY40 Second Coming and CY40 combined. You guys did that. Yeah, all right. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you. You are allowing me to do what I do, and I haven't forgotten about you. I am doing my due diligence and making sure to get you the perks that you claimed, which I have so far. So... The ebooks have been delivered to all backers. I just shipped out all of the paperbacks. So your paperback copy is on its way. Um, the ones I need to sign are the one exception. I've had those shipped to me. But as soon as they come here, I will sign them all and mail them to you. The posters have been sent out. The pilot cards and the mech cards have been sent out. So I believe the only thing I still need to fulfill is the tech guide. Which, uh, thanks to Ardenon and Todd, my awesome artists, really stole the show from the, the last campaign. Uh, a lot of people interested in having like a 
Combat Frame XC Companion volume, which I'm doing in the style of a Jane's Defense Weekly Combat Frame spec data sheet, right? So it's going to have all the nuts and bolts stats you could ask for on the CY era Combat Frames and support vehicles. Awesome. Yeah, and I am formatting that right now. Just needs a little more polishing up, and then I'm getting that out the door to you guys. Um, speaking of getting stuff out the door, of course, I am here because Comet Frame XCS has officially launched on Amazon. Now, you may ask, well, wait, doesn't crowdfunding a book where the backers all get the book tend to cannibalize Amazon sales? And I'll readily admit, yes, it does. But you absolute madmen have backed that trend because right now the ebook of Combat Frame Xseed S is sitting at number 32 in its Amazon category. Yeah. That's on the first page. Okay. So it is my most successful fiction book launch to date. It beat every previous Xseed book and every Soul Cycle book. Well, that's great to hear. That's more important than anything else. That upward trend is really encouraging. I'm glad to offer encouragement. And I see a lot of new authors who are uh, looking for inspiration. And I'm, I'm glad to help. My, my goal is to get you guys off the bench into the game because we, we need you. That's That's great because... Yeah, I for me offering the perks was huge, and offering the paperback through Indiegogo, those were huge. I I would have waited till it was on Amazon if it weren't for those two things. Uh, wonder, uh, are you is is it uh, mostly ebook sales or paperback sales? Checking right now, it it is. Well, I mean, everything is mostly ebook sales. I mean, oh right, I'm weird, right? No, but that that's okay. But it's actually showing pretty healthy print version sales too. Good. Oh, uh, one one mild criticism on the, the print versions. Uh, are you finally putting the full title on the spine, or are we getting are we going to continue to get color coded Xseed books? The full title is on the spine. Yes. All right. Cool. Cool. Because you're starting a new series with this. That's why. Yeah, well, and honestly, that's not entirely my call because uh, that, that was an artistic decision of my previous cover artist and uh, new series, new cover artist, right? Like I love it. Yeah, I loved the work that uh, the Todd Everhart did on the CY era covers, mm -hmm. um, but I opted not to go with him because I wanted to differentiate the S arc from the CY forty arc and. People are visual, so you got to differentiate the art. So I went with a slightly different style, but people seem to like it. Uh, yeah, I I really like the cover that you've been sporting for a few months now. Uh, it's a it's a great choice. It's really bright and flashy, and and uh, yeah, okay. The uh, I don't know if uh, Gundam fans like it, but it does look an awful lot like Optimus Prime firing. Now that now that I really think about it, you you also have a Transformers vibe going there, which is a good thing, I think. Yeah, no argument here. Yeah. All right. Um, 
let's see what else so what are your plans for the exceed s series is it uh how much how much are you focusing on that mystery how much how much of it is just going to be a travel log of great new colonies uh, and planets and and so on and so forth and how much of it is just going to be dirty military action that's a great question especially since it lets me segue into your contribution because uh the, the dirty awesome. military travelogue would not have been nearly as interesting without the help of our awesome BAM backers from this time. Because basically what I did was feature a new BAM at each world the Sovereign Protector visited. And yours was definitely a highlight. Uh, I, <laughs> it was fun to make and it was really fun to read. The, uh, the dome was... Uh, uh, I mean, the, the concept was just to have a hometown hero. I was like, hey, Brian, do you have a colony you need featured? Because I have an idea for this colony, right? And so um, most of the colony idea was yours, but we sort of, we folded the the mech idea in. And I was really pleased with the the scene and the action, the way it unfolded was uh, was pretty much just as we talked about. Like we, we talked about a couple of possible scenarios and, and w at least one of them showed up in the in the book itself. I was like, yeah, that's great. Uh, tons of fun and and sort of to watch uh, to watch that creation sort of do what it's supposed to do. Like when you have that discussion with the author and and that sort of comes out on the page. Love it. It's the the build a Mac is a huge hit. Yeah, I, I love it too. And I, I've gone ahead and put a link to the data sheet for John's dome. In the, the private StreamYard chat, by the way, in case you guys would like to share that. Who? Oh yeah, we'll share that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I loved it, and honestly, um, the BAM just keep getting better. I believe we had our best crop yet. Uh, the, the Wild Hunt, in particular, was a standout. Um, unfortunately, due to time and page limit constraints, I couldn't fit all of them in with the attention they deserved. So some of the BAMs only ended up in cameos mm -hmm. but they will come into their their full glory and have a time to shine in the next book which is what you asked about so um i know it gets said a lot but it it's true here it's me talking so you guys know i'm not blowing smoke if combat frame exceed s is the s arcs a new hope the next one is its empire strikes back that's where we're going in double S. All right. Yeah. So the one writing sin I cannot abide is repeating myself. Um, <coughs> if I had to do the, the rapid churn monthly release, telling essentially the same space Marine story with palette swaps again and again, I would throw up my hands after like two months of that and go into something completely else. I'd go sell trucks, right? <clears throat> so the next book is definitely going to be different, but while retaining the best elements and the general world building that we've built upon so far, but uh, again, trying to avoid spoilers here, not as much of a, 
a travelogue element as um okay good way to put this is so uh going back to star trek the next generation it was very episodic they very much had a planet of the week thing except during like the season finales and season premieres sweeps yeah like best of both worlds is a great example where oh no well, we got to get the Enterprise D back to Earth to stop Locutus, right? So more along the lines of that. Got it. Because of the events in Exceed S, you already mentioned the traitors amongst humanity. They're they're not stopping their traitorous actions. No, it, it exactly not. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't be any fun if they just decided to go home and, and take their ball with them. Um, and I give a big hint in the preview, in, in the epilogue and the preview of the next book, uh, what what's coming. But one thing that's definitely happening, I can tell you in Double S is more character. I tried to go like um, a 50-50 plot-driven and character-driven mix in S. Double S is going to turn up the character and interpersonal drama. Um, let's just say that the Inzu are going to become less of a faceless boogeyman and we're, we're going to kind of have the Michael Myers unmasking, which I do heavily hint at. So, you know, that's coming. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty heavily hinted at the end of exceed S that, that, that unmasking is due. Yeah. As uh, well as the appearance, uh, the, the full on appearance of the platypus princess. <laughs> Speaking of the more comedic tone. Yeah. But you need the comic relief. Um, like Dido Orpik was saying about horror earlier. So you just don't get bogged down in grim nihilism. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Although, uh, although fair warning, I, 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 you might've intended it this way, but in the scene that introduces my build the dome, the, the domes themselves were badass, but the, the rest of that scene did have a mild comedic tone to it. <laughs> Did you intend that? Yeah, just the the, 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 yeah. the the pilots were slaying me. I was, I was actually laughing every time, every time it happened. But that's cool. Uh, it was really fun to read. Well, then I've done my job. All right. Um, I am running low on really good questions. Uh, Daddy okay. Warpig, running low on really good time. Oh, Bravo. son of a gun. Um. <sighs> All right, all right, Brian. Uh, this is your chance. Last pitch, last thoughts. Uh, anything else you want to say? Yes, fans of Gene Cheney's Messenger series and Colin Anspox, Smash at Galaxy's Edge, will thrill to this first installment in a brand new series in the Comet Frame Exceed Saga. We're number thirty-two. I think we can get it to number one. Get in there and buy it, even if you already bought it, even if you already backed the campaign. Pick up a paperback copy, pick up an ebook, so you can look yourself in the mirror and say, I own several copies, Bob. <laughs> Love it. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you back on, talk about this stuff. Uh, the chat was lively. Love having you guys here. Uh, too many names to name uh, this week, but it's all good. And as always, it's awesome to hang out with you, Daddy Warpig, my inimitable co host. Uh, great show, great time, everybody. And uh, I'm done. Happy Halloween. Thanks, everybody. <sighs>
Does this mean it's my turn? You get a turn, buddy. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here, folks. Thanks. My name is Daddy Warpig, and this is just the best thing ever. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, <laughs> of course. All Go right, uh, I want to thank everybody who showed up live to uh, to participate. Um, we've had a bunch of people in the chat, a uh, bunch of people who haven't been able to come for a while. Uh, lively chat. Uh, folks, if you can, tune in live. Uh, we're here about every week, just about this, every week, which is to say every Saturday, just about this time. Uh, jump in live and join in the chat with the awesome and incredibly intelligent and uh, unusually sexy people who uh, come in and join the chat every week. You will have conversations the depth and breadth of which you cannot possibly imagine until you see them scrolling up your screen. We also want to thank those of you who uh, come in and listen later to enjoy the awesome and immense entertainment value of Geek Gab. We uh, are here. You can catch us on youtube.com slash geekgab, youtube.com slash geekgab. Uh, you can subscribe and click the little bell icon to get announcements as when we're going live. You can also catch us on soundcloud.com on the Google Play Store and on the Apple iTunes Store so you can listen to us on the device of your choice. We are signing up for today, but don't you worry. Don't you fret. We. We'll be back.